Welcome to the Story Forward Podcast, Summer Edition, Season 2.5. I am Larry Rosen, of course. He is Christian Wynn. Christian Wynn, tell us what we've got in store. Today, we're bringing up poet Tessie Ward, who is straight out of Chicago. The recording we have is uh, from a Sunday morning event at last year's Story Fort called Poetry and Mimosas that happens every year at Story Fort. And since the point, one of the points of this season 2.5 is to give people a taste of Story Fort, why don't you tell us what Poetry and Mimosas is all about? Poetry and Mimosas has been, I think from the very first year of Story Fort in 2014, um, something we've done on the last day of the festival or the fest as we like to call it. Basically sort of bringing like seven, eight, 10 poets together, depending on the year to read their poetry and have Bloody Marys and also uh, mimosas available, coffee, pastries, all the bit on the last day of the, which is the fifth day of the festival, the noon hour to the two o'clock hour, just to get ready for the last day of like, Yeah, it's a nice little wrap up. So that's one of the things we're going to hear on episode 2.5.4. The other is from the Cocktail Stories event Mm -hmm. uh, held at the Mode Lounge in beautiful downtown Boise. Tell us a little bit about that one, who we're going to hear. And that's right on 8th Street in downtown Boise. Uh, We have Mr. Matthew Mormon, longtime friend of uh, Story Fort and Story Forward, and just a good friend of uh, of mine. And Larry has met him a couple of times, I believe, over the years. Perhaps not, but he has an amazing story about (laughs) a lot of cocaine and a lot of uh, Steamboat Colorado back in the day. So, you know, Cocktail Stories is all about people who work in the industry, serving the cocktails, bartending and whatnot, but also some servers and also some folks that work in the back of the house and all that kind of stuff over the years. We've had really great narratives and Mr. Mormon gives us a really interesting glimpse into his life in the 80s in Steamboat, Colorado. And then Christy Kicks. Christy's gonna fill us in on some of her experiences uh, also in the service industry. Well, let's go right to them. Let's not waste any more time listening to us. Let's do it. Our next poet is Tessie Ward. Tessie Ward is the author of My Head Can Feel the Vibrating of a Full Heartbeat Through a Chest That Is Neither Hollow Nor Dark, a chapbook from Press 254. She has an MFA from Boise State University and was a Sutherland Fellow in Poetry at Illinois State University. Her work has recently appeared, or is forthcoming, and requited Rogaroo, I'm going to take a guess there, Rogaroo, and Touch the Donkey, among others. Please welcome Tessie Ward. So um, I'm going to read a a combination of a few older pieces, some new pieces, but one thing that I saw kind of trending this weekend was parent poems. (laughs) (laughs) So I dug and I dug and I dug and I found one. Um, I do love my mother. We'll just start with that. (laughs) Uh, This is called Burberry. There's a point of resolving things I wished never existed. Like that time in the store when you yelled because I didn't want to buy hot pink pumps because I was afraid I would walk funny and I didn't want to buy the orthopedic shoes because the doctor made me feel beaten. You growled to just shut up and try it. 
So I did. The shine of the plastic hurt before it touched me, strapped into that narrow sheath, ankle wrapped with a bow. I still avoid turning my feet inwards and letting my knees strip me from grace. There's an idealization, never verbalized, that I've defeated. I don't have pink shoes yet. I don't have a husband or a house or a child, and I don't make any money. I can barely put myself to bed. I don't know who I am or what I want, and I know I'm not what you imagined. You call every week to see how things are, to tell me about my sister and her new baby, my brother and his success. I can hear the hope for me to become someone who will go to the store, find that idol, try it on. For those of you who saw me earlier uh, this week, sorry, you get to hear this one again. Um, I keep looking at this poem every year since the pandemic has happened, um, and I really enjoy watching how it evolves. Some of it seems overgrown, some of it seems too short, um, and I think we all keep doing that with ourselves. So this yeah. is March. And it's been a while since we've been here, under this tree, feeling the sunlight. The news keeps telling us we're dying, and we start to wonder how we've made it this far. Starlings peek the patches trodden over too far on the grass, whittling for reseed or an overgrowth, the onslaught, the waiting period. I have to go in again for the migraines. I wonder if they'll put me on the contact side. I get to see the full getup, the suits, the danger zone. We all talk about going to the doctor now. I can almost talk about it as if it's normal. My age, my weight, my height. What is your pain today? And what is your pain? All right, so um, a lot of the manuscript I wrote in the Boise State MFA was on how we don't talk about illness. And then I defended that in March of 2020. Uh, <laughs> so some things, uh, have changed since then. Um, so some of these poems will kind of refer to illness and struggling with what it's like to be chronically ill and identify in that body or not, um, but also how that works in a pandemic. This is called Affliction, Affection. There is a time in the evening where you say you are not sleeping while I can hear you snoring. Your syllables stack onto themselves, and you tell me not to forget the bag of chips from the lunch line as if we are eating. If I jostled you, I would gain attention and a hand on my knee that shows care, distance, a small push. Too much resistance results in barely scraping by. A sliver is burying myself into my hand, callous from the plastic shovel I used to scoop waste towards my body during the day and away from meditations at night. This is called putting you on hold. Could we not do this anymore? Please stop calling to tell me I'm pretty. You're wasted. And I'm wasted on the things I should have said to you last night, or maybe last week when we were here again, here again. 
You'll never know I wrote this because someday you'll be gone, and I'll just be wondering why I couldn't save you, and that smile. The innocence always flickers right before the slamming on the table and the shouting at the walls. Call back. Baby, where are you? Gone again? Please come home. This is called Holes in the Left Sock. The way they tingled in my hands was unpredictable. I don't know when I'll run out of spoons if I can't hold one. Explaining this feeling doesn't make it disappear. We sit at the dinner table, looking away from each other, looking away from the plate, looking away from the cutlery dropped. You ask how I do it, but you mean how I don't. The soup starts to get cold. The oven clock changes digits. Some flicker before the minute passes. The silence doesn't stop wine from being poured. There's no point in pleading anymore. It doesn't matter when this night is over because this conversation never ends. It pauses and maybe it gets better. It pauses, comes back harder. The girls sense stress, leave for the couch cushions, watch the whimpering, wait for rest, even they won't touch what's been left on the floor. Okay. This is called density. When I read about myself on the internet, they call me disabled. It's just an illness. If I exercise, it's not as bad. If I eliminate gluten and dairy and fat and sugar from my diet, it's not as bad. If I lay down and don't move, it's not as bad. I can't even pronounce the word. If I could, I wouldn't want to. I keep reading about myself on the internet, the ways I could progress. I could lose the function in my arms or legs. I could become paralyzed. Did you know that this could grow inside of me? I keep reading about myself. I find that some people lose their vision or their hearing. I really like to go to concerts. They say this part will never change. There is no cure. It's probably idiopathic or some myriad realm of potential accidents that have never decided to activate symptoms. In some ways, I'm finding them more interesting than I ever thought I would be. Maybe this will make for a good date conversation. Am I now under a social contract to tell people I have this? or in the ways I can be disabled. Nobody tells me what to do. The doctor told me to read online. The people online have left it in the forums. My mother told me I don't have to tell anyone anything. She's also my mother. Okay, just two more for you. Thank you everyone so much. Mama taught you well. Wait until you see the way we move in sunlight, touch around the trunk, seeds fall and scatter, possibly wasted. Eyes glimmer in the light, well from laughter, brim over. Sirens circle the block in the housing district. They hail, slam the door shut, jog. It's the fourth time today. Ask what it's like to be this way. You know I've been watching. I'll draw a metaphor, dramatize my day, this pain. 
The seeds shiver as they're blowing along the cobblestone. You see my fingers near, patient. Dance again with your arms that way in the air, wailing, waving. I don't follow. The street lamp flickers orange under this moon. It's full, feels different. Maybe you can tell too. Sirens start again, take off with another one. Come on, ask. I know you want to. It's rude to say it. So is the glare of pity, the way your hand reaches for my fragility, expecting me to mistake this as grace. Okay. And this last one kind of goes with the idea of a complacency or a place that we may not realize we're in until we finally step out. And I've been going through some of my newer work trying to figure out where things are and what they look like. And uh, I notice I've been writing this type of poem for years, so it's really exciting to finally share one. The poem I won't write for you because then I know it's a cycle. Blue eyes matching that scar underneath your brow, brimming. We were close, weren't we? You said this time you'd go to the doctor, get a haircut, shave, make an appointment for the fucking dentist like your mother begs you every time she's wasted. You look so pretty when you're groomed, lavender shampoo, kitchen dance, little twirl. Clean the dishes and vacuum the house. Change my seat, change my sheets, and tell me never again. Get me the discount flowers and sulk. This is what forgiveness looks like. Until the flowers wilt, the garbage stinks from the chicken you cooked three nights ago. Back at the table, who knows how many do you say, don't drag it out. I'm always going to be this way. My mom passed away when I was 10, and something that was really special about her was when the power would go out, she would always say, ooh, goody. And like my first job was to go and get the votive candle holders. She could make things feel special. Hello, everyone on the other side of the city. Hi. Hey, hello. How do you do? I am doing good. <laughs> I hope you are good too. Thank you. So my secret is that I never grew up and I'm never going to. I have a girlfriend and my parents don't know about it. I love everybody. I'm gay. I'm really good at British accent. I'm hungry for love. I've learned one thing. Everyone has a story. Keep your back straight. Love everyone around you before they're gone. You are never too old to go do something fun. You're going through a difficult time. Know that you are strong. You can do more than you think you can. You are so loved. A place that I love. We love you, Boise. You're so beautiful. I love you so much. <laughs> All you need is love. Whoever's listening, thanks for sharing. Thank you so much.
Uh, hi, I'm Matt. Uh, I moved to Boise in 96. Um, uh, I was brought on to this panel to break up the cocktail serving and the distilling of spirits and cheesecloth and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about a story that happened to me. Basically, uh, Chris wanted bar shenanigans, when the best bar shenanigans are the ones that they participate in fully, 100%. Um, my first bartending gig was in 1985. I was an original employee of the Radisson Hotel at the Radisson Plaza Hotel at Austin Center at 7th and Brazos in Austin, Texas. There you go. So you guys are coming up from South by Southwest. I think the building's still there. The Radisson's long gone. But I was hired for as an AM uh, morning room service waiter. And after I turned 21, uh, the hotel decided that they needed a service bar. So they cut a hole in the sidewall of the liquor cabinet, the liquor uh, warehouse and the wine storage, put in a little garage door and set up a well, and they bought a, a recipe book, and that's how I started tending bar. Um, four months I tended that service bar, and I probably made seven drinks, six of which were uh, mimosas. My first drink was... Of course, the first drink I ever I was terrified because I sat there for two weeks and then all of a sudden the printer went off, which is the little guy that every bartender hates. When somebody orders a drink, you get, a, you get the printer going off. So it was a Bloody Mary, which is one of the most notoriously finicky drinks for people. And uh, so I poured a bunch of vodka and a glass of ice and some tomato juice and maybe salt and pepper or something like that and sent it down. And of course, the first drink I ever made in my life was sent back from the table. Ah, the drink was too strong, they said, and uh, it tasted like tomato juice and not much else. So, I mean, I accept that criticism, but uh, anyway, I did that job for a little bit, and then I moved back up to, I'm actually from Oklahoma, so I moved back up to Stillwater to go to school, and uh, I turned that four-month service bartender six-drink gig, and on my resume, I turned that into bar manager, two years experience and I got hired at a local place called Mexico Joe's. If anybody's familiar with Stillwater, there's this big bar called Eskimo Joe's and the owner of that has several ancillary little outlets like Mexico Joe's. That's the Mexican bar. And then he has Giuseppe's, which is uh, the Italian Joe's where you can go to get pasta, such as it is in Stillwater, Oklahoma. But anyway, so I got hooked up with uh, uh, one of my life's great mentors, Bill Winters, who I'm a 6'3 guy, about 220. Uh, Bill Winters is 6'5 and about 260, giant Stetson cowboy hat, cowboy boots, and he ran this bar. And uh, I met one of my boon companions for life, Tyler Forbes there, he was a co-bartender with me. Bill used to chase us around and, and uh, hold our arms behind our back and twist our arms to get us to do side work, etc, etc. The bar at Mexico Joe's was a very tiny thing, it was about six bar stools and we slung a lot of pictures of Coors Light and uh, did a lot of frozen margaritas out of the blending machine. So, uh, but we got in lots of trouble. Uh, when I was tending bar, I tended bar there for three or four years, and during that time we discovered cocaine. So, holla if you've been there. So, uh, cocaine in those days, uh, there was ecstasy too, but the cocaine, like the kitchen manager, like twice a year, his cousin would roll in from Oklahoma City or something like that, bring up a little batch. And it'd be super shitty, and you'd buy a bunch, or like a whole the group of guys would buy a bunch, and then, you know, at midnight, you'd have to go knock on his apartment door and go, hey, man, can we get some more uh, cocaine? And then we'd go through all that, and it'd be like 4 o'clock in the morning, and you'd go back to the apartment and go, hey, man, can we, uh, 
we'll get some more cocaine, you know. And uh, so that was kind of our cocaine experience in Stillwater. Um, one time, uh, the, the assistant kitchen manager at Mexico Joe's, uh, we used to go down and play bingo at the, uh, uh, I can't remember which tribe it is, and I don't want to mistake it. It was a tribal bingo parlor about 10 miles south of town. Uh, Robert Morris hit the $1,200 bingo in the last one, bought an eight ball and a keg on the way home from that. <laughs> and they had this really sweet little place outside of town. It was, it was like a, one of those housing neighborhoods where everybody has five acres. And there's a little pond, and they had a balcony that overlooked the pond, etc., etc., etc. And uh, we tore it down that night pretty good. Robert Morris on the way into town to open the kitchen at 7 o'clock the next morning. He had not been to sleep. He uh, hit a deer with his shitty little BMW that he had. And uh, uh, the deer is literally lying. He stops like a good person, and the deer is lying there gurgling. And the only thing he has in his car, in the trunk, is a ball-peen hammer. And so he has to put the deer in his conscious. His spoke to him, and he felt like he had to put the deer out of his misery, so he did it with a ball-peen hammer. And so now, then after that, immediately in the vernacular of the of the times there and the people that were involved, any time you got into a big scrape or you were hung over or anything like that, you were felt like hammered deer. Anyway, so I tend to bar there for three or four years, and I'm leading up to this thing, this thing called a poker game that I'll get to in a few years. Uh, I moved to with my fiance, then fiance, became my wife later, to Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And I got hooked up with Ski Corps there, and I worked as a waiter in the fancy the fancy restaurant at the top of the gondola where the gondola turns around at Thunderhead, like 9,800 feet. They had like four dining outlets in this building. It's like you could take your red tray and go cafeteria style, get a cheeseburger, get a hot dog. But I worked in the high end, uh, the prefix place where you know we got we, we served Chateaubriand, uh, French uh, roast lamb, etc., stuff like that. And, uh, and then uh, during the mud season, I got a job downtown in the main part of town at uh, La Cantina. Anybody know Steamboat? This is a little Mexican restaurant in Steamboat. Uh, we did, the third year I was there, it pushed out about like 1.2 million with 14 tables and a 12 uh, bar stool bar. Um, so it was a hopping little place. Locals favorite, they said, which was really true. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the construction guys came and worked there. Plus, it got a lot of tour tons of tourist business. We have a two-hour wait in the in the winter uh, during ski season, and um, and I started working there waiting tables. And uh, somebody couldn't make it to work that night in the bar, so I jumped in there, and I started attending bar there, and uh, it was great. Um, a year later, I was general manager of the place. Uh, my head waitress there, her name was Beth. And she was, I was probably 30 then, and she was in her mid-50s or 60 or something like that. Uh, she sold little bindles of cocaine, half a gram, 50 bucks, right out of her waitress apron. It was great. No, I was like, super, you could run back to the wait station, pop in, 50 bucks, zip zoom, you know, there goes your shift. Yeah, good times. And then you could go back at 10 when you're doing your side work and go, hey, could I get another bindle for the boat? And uh, yeah, so um, I attended bar there, and you know I kind of stayed away from the cola a little bit. I drank like a fish. I was waiting tables up at Hazy's, the fancy restaurant on the mountain, and was the general manager of the restaurant. So during the ski season and the full-on summer season, uh, I was working three doubles a week and had one day off. So I was down at the restaurant five days a week, and then I 
waited tables at three days a week. So after, you know, three years of that or so, um, you know, I was drinking plenty, smoking a quarter ounce of weed a week. And then, uh, yeah, it started, started picking up bindles on the weekend just to make the Saturday shift go by a little faster. And then you bought two bindles a weekend and then four bindles a weekend. And then, you know how it goes. This is a story. It's not uncommon at all. Um, there was another guy that came in there, too. He was a carpet layer. His name is Phil. He sold a little bit. His, his cola was really shitty. I think he got it from Denver, where Beth got hers. Hers came up from Grand Junction, I think. So it was like, but Steamboat is kind of the end of the road, and I was the end user at the end of the road. So how many times Bacola got stepped on, I don't even know if it was, you could actually term it as cocaine by the time, you know, I'm, you know, in the bathroom down stall with my little straw, so you know. But it worked, I guess. At least in my mind it did, and that's the only place that it really matters, is in your own mind. So uh, uh, Phil and his son, we call him Chop Chop, because he uh, legendarily, back when he was living in Pennsylvania, threatened to kill his girlfriend, dismember her with her, his hatchet, and then bury her somewhere in the, in the backyard. So the name Chop Chop stuck with him. They lived together, and they split different sides of the duplex, uh, Phil laid carpet for a living, but he also sold cocaine on the side. <laughs> I don't know what was more lucrative, but uh, it, was, it was not uncommon for him to be sitting at the bar drinking a CC7, and somebody would come in looking for him because he hadn't shown up to do to stretch the carpet or pull the old carpet or whatever it was. And there would be screaming matches at the bar. Uh, it was great. But anyway, one Sunday night, dun, 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 that one Sunday night, I was... Uh, Phil came in, and the other bar, one of the other bartenders, Dano, uh, was there too, and they were both gacked up to the gills, and Phil made it known that he had plenty of coke for sale, and if we wanted to do it, that we could do it. And so the idea for the poker game came up. So cocaine, poker, whiskey, all these things, and boredom, the main attraction there. It was a Sunday night shift, so uh, one of the rules that the owner of the hotel, or the, oh, excuse me, the owner of the cantina, uh, had was that the hours of the restaurant are on the door. You will stay the F open until those hours. So we closed at 10 o'clock, kitchen closed at 10. Um, that night, uh, Phil had plenty. It was dead. This, this is early May, uh, mud season, they called it up there. And uh, so we, you know, I bought a bindle, went to the bathroom. We were drinking pretty good, shots of plenty. And the idea for the card game came up. So that's, uh, we, I decided, executively, as the general manager of the place, that I could just close the damn bar at 9 o'clock and we could go get this poker game on then rather than later, Sunday night. I had the next day off, and I was supposed to work Tuesday night, too, so I figured we were probably pretty safe. Called my then-wife and said, oh, well, we're going to go play cards. Um, I'll talk to you later. It'll probably be late. Don't wait up, etc., etc." Um, so, uh, Tuesday morning... I called Debbie Zuber, one of the waitresses, to see if she could close the bar for me because I was still at the poker game and hadn't been to sleep yet. So we're on 48 hours. And the way it worked at the poker game was Phil gave us all, the five or six dudes that were there, like a big, chunky, gnarly couple of lines for free. Yeah. So we all got started, and, you know, about three hours later, everybody's kind of he's like, anybody ready? And so that's when you have to kick in the 50 to Phil. Uh, if you're winning poker at poker, that's pretty good. You got a 50 hanging. If you don't have 50 bucks, you can ask Phil, the bank of Phil, for 100 bucks to play poker. 
Or you can get a bin of cocaine for 50 bucks and put it on the, on the ledger. Or you can do both, which is what we did. And in poker, you go up, you go down. With cocaine, you go up and you go down. And so uh, Tuesday morning, by Tuesday morning, I had not yet checked in with the wife. And I had called somebody to cover my shift uh, for Tuesday night. Uh, Wednesday morning came rolling around, and it was about noonish, I guess, and then there was a knock at the door, and we all kind of were like, what the hell is this? And it was my wife knocking at the door. So she's, because I had called Betty Zuber, who was a gossiper extraordinaire, it's also a very little town, uh, much smaller than, uh, well, I don't know, it's Ketchum Lake, it's a ski resort. Um, so she had found out in minimal amounts of sleuthing where I was, what the address was, although I never had any idea where Phil had lived before, but she tracked us down, knocked on the door, and so we all ran and hid in the hallway. <laughs> like all these tough guys in their snort coat. All in with 2-9 offsuit, bluffing, and uh, we turned into tiny little critters and just scampered off into the hallway. And so Phil answered the door eventually, and. Yeah, I, well, I can't say it. Some of you people might know my ex-wife, now ex-wife. <laughs> uh, good. Okay, knocks on the door, Phil goes, hello? Where the fuck is Matt? Uh, oh, he's not here, we're not doing anything. There's a poker table in the back and 700 empty bottles on the counter. And she goes, so the ex-wife literally rips the screen door from the frame and throws it out into the yard, comes in, overturns the table, smashes up, and I'm like, okay, I'm here. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And uh, uh, so that was kind of rock bottom, I guess. Um, we stuck it out for years later. Um, I, I, I eased back quite a bit after that, for sure. I made all the oaths, swore all the promises, um, we decided probably that maybe we should move on from Steamboat after that because uh, the concentric circles of friendships intertwined, etc. And uh, uh, she had some family issues. Her folks lived in Twin. We didn't want to live in Twin, so she moved to Boise first ahead of me. I had to sell our house and uh, train the new general manager, gave plenty of notice to the boss. And then she was out here two months before me, I guess which I may have relapsed back into the old habits after she was gone, or the 500-mile rule and all that kind of thing. If you're married, you know what that is. We raised two beautiful children. I finally got my shit together and graduated from college. Um, I taught uh, English at both Boise State and CWI for about a decade and a half. And, uh, you know, things happened. I got tired of doing that. I worked for Tom for a little bit, and then COVID hit, and then... Uh, after COVID, uh, I stumbled on this little bar out in East Boise, and I tend bar there now. And uh, I don't know what it is about bartending. Is it instant gratification? It's uh, A, the fucking people that come in there five days a week, and you're like, what do you ha what lives do you lead that you're at the bar five days a week? But thank God you are there. Thank God. We have a really good clientele with the loyal patronage, and there's also a hotel nearby that feeds us with people from out of state. And uh, uh, I don't know of any other job where I can work when I want and make minimum 30 bucks an hour, basically 30 to 40 bucks an hour. Uh, no insurance, any of that kind of stuff, but it's a, it's a pretty good gig. And I, I enjoy interacting. I like, I'm a bartender, I tend to bar. I'm not a mixologist, although I have nothing but admiration for people that uh, 
create their own bitters and distill their own versions of the mother's milk. Love the stories behind the cocktails, but there's just the interaction with people. There's nothing I like more than having the game on the televisions and every single person at the bar has a full glass and is happy and is tipping like motherfuckers. Ah. So anyway, thank you all for putting up with me. Hopefully I didn't digress too much.
Flatiron Lounge was arguably New York's first high-volume craft cocktail bar that brought mixology to the masses. In the years since, Julie had a hand in opening a number of the city's top bars in New York, from Peggy Club and her own Clover Club in Brooklyn. Uh, she's always been an inspiration of mine and has sort of driven me into pursuing a career in making craft cocktails. Especially because she paved the way for women in a mostly male-dominated industry in a time when that wasn't a thing. So it's kind of super important to honor those people who came before us and paved the way. Uh, now there's a lot more women in this industry and I just want to continue to support all of them and hope that uh, we can have some equality and show that women are badasses behind the bar. And, you know, we, we, we can make some cocktails. I'm just saying. Um, so Julie created the bar program at Andaz with an emphasis on the craft side of things, but still utilizing fresh juices and ingredients that are very prevalent in the islands. But the interesting part about it is the normal sort of, uh, especially in resorts, the normal cocktail program is sort of the very sweet, you know, frozen blended drinks where Julie sort of changed that path and uh, created a craft cocktail scene in resorts uh, that's high volume. So she took her sort of um, game plan from her own restaurants and turned it into something that can happen anywhere. And that was very surprising and also drove me to the Mai Tai, which I'm enjoying right now. Just wait, I'm gonna talk about this for a second because this is not your traditional Mai Tai, as you probably have guessed. When one thinks of the Mai Tai, you probably imagine a dark rum floating atop some pineapple juice, some orange juice, maybe a little grenadine, maybe a maraschino cherry and some pineapple wedges on the side, but that is not the original Mai Tai. Does anyone know where the Mai Tai originated, the original one? Tahiti? Hawaii? No. No. Oakland, California. Here's that. So there's this guy. His name is Victor J. Bergeron, better known as Trader Vic. He wanted to create and showcase a specific flavor of this 17-year-old rum that he had. It was a rain nephew, Jamaican rum. He highlighted the golden medium-bodied rum with lime juice, orgeat, which is an almond syrup, and orange curacao, which is an orange liqueur. And according to legend, he presented it to his Tahitian friends who liked to hang out in his bar in Oakland. And they liked it so much that they exclaimed, Mai Tai Roa Ae, which translates to, out of this world, the best. So he named his own cocktail, Mai Tai, or the best. Of course, there's a little discrepancy to this because there's, you know, always haters out there in the world. So there's this guy uh, named Don Beachcomber, and he was like, you know, I made this cocktail, and Trader Vic took it and ran with it. 
and it has cocktail is the Kebby Cooler. So Vic was like, Mina. So he wrote this book, and he was like, it's called The Trader Vic's Bartender's Guide, and he said, anyone who says I didn't create this drink is a dirty stinker. That's harsh words back then, you know what I'm saying? Right now it's like, fuck you, man. It's my drink. Legend also has it that Vic kept the recipes completely secret, and he would label the bottles that went into the Mai Tai with just numbers, so the bartenders only knew the bottles by the number, and would only pour a certain amount from each bottle that was numbered. And, you know, I mean, bartenders are pretty crafty, you know, we kind of figure stuff out, and they figured it out, the recipe, eventually. Um, so there are circulating recipes out there in the world of what was the original recipe. But then, what happened was, uh, in the 40s and 50s, Americans became obsessed with tiki culture and Polynesian uh, lifestyle and culture, and everyone flocked to Hawaii. In 1953, the Mai Tai officially landed in Hawaii because the Matson steamship lines, see this is why I have to have notes because there's so many like little like intricate things about the Mai Tai, so uh, bear with me, but <laughs> the Matson steamship line hired Trader Vic to oversee the cocktail menus for the bars at the Royal Hawaiian and Moana Surfrider hotels, both of which are actually still there and super cool old school vintage Hawaiian hotels. So if you ever ch have a chance to go out there, check them out because it's so cool. Um, so they hired him. They quickly realized that most people preferred a sweeter cocktail. Similar to here in Boise. Sorry, guys. But it's true. Um, <laughs> um, they quickly realized that most people preferred the the pineapple and orange juice kind of sweeter flavor, and that's why he sort of introduced that. And he was the one who did it. He had the original recipe. And he was all, eh, I guess let's just make everyone happy. Here's some pineapple juice. Um, so that was all well and good, but fast forward to the 80s. This is what we in the industry call the dark period of cocktails. Because, because it was about speed, and people put pineapple juice from the store on the gun in the bar, and pre-made, you know, store-bought syrups, and it was just fast. It was fast. It was fast and easy, and gross. So gross. Uh, so we strayed away from any fresh ingredients at all, uh, which was very sad. So thankfully, one fine day, a group of bartenders came together, uh, including Julia Reiner, and said, you know what? Let's find out how we can make the old Trader Vic's Mai Tai uh, as true to the original recipe as we can. So the rum that Vic used in the very beginning was no longer made for like 50 years. So the bartenders had to sort of create uh, a concoction that was as close as possible. And Julie always said that, um, her favorite quote actually, is, why use one rum when two makes it better? 
So they put together a couple of brownies, and it came really close to that original recipe. And uh, the traditional, you know, homemade fresh pressed juice, um, and as many uh, fresh things as possible. So as you're sipping these cocktails, you'll notice that it's not very sweet. It's a little bit more on the citrusy side. Um, it's almost, a lot of people have always told me, oh, it's kind of like a margarita. And it kind of is, but it showcases the rum because it's forward, and it showcases a uh, fresh lime, and it showcases a homemade orgeat, which is that almond syrup. However, I was in a rush, and I had some friends help me out because you can't buy that here, and I didn't have time to make it. So I went to my friends at the Devil's Den. If anyone's out, has anyone at Tiki Bar. Um, so all sorts of amazing tiki cocktails. And I was like, hey, Tavis, help. I need orjot. And the cool thing about it is, is that there are actually no nuts in that orjot. It's actually made from oat milk because people have nut allergies. So that's kind of a cool thing that it tastes super, super similar, but it has no nuts in it. So if anyone has nut allergies, drink it. It's good for you. I won't kill you, I promise. So, this, uh, I digressed a little, but um, this totally got me into being super excited about rum. Rum is fascinating. It has a history that goes back in time to pirates and slavery and the Royal British Navy getting paid with rum. And there are no regulations to rum, so... Um, Really, it's like one thing, and it's like it, it has to have a little bit of sugar cane in it, and that's about it. So, it's fascinating, and I can talk about it for hours and hours. But for the sake of time, uh, I work over right there at Fork. Come over and see me, and I'll talk your ear off. So, how did I end up here? Right, that's the big question. How did someone who lived on a tropical island? Move to Boise, Idaho. Well, a couple of reasons. But before I get into that, uh, just a few blocks away from here is the Owahi Tavern. Has anyone heard of it? And then uh, southwest Idaho is the Owahi Mountain Range and the Owahi County. You guys kind of see where I'm going? Because do you know what Owahi means? It's the original word for Hawaii. So, Owaihi is actually what the natives were called uh, in Hawaii before they changed it to Hawaiian or Hawaii. And so, what happened was there was a, um, an excursion where trappers were uh, scouting that area and they had some Hawaiian people with them doing some of the scouting. The Hawaiians decided it would be a good idea to go off on their own and leave their British counterparts who they were hanging out with. And they got lost, never to be seen again. And so the British people who were scouting with them decided to name that area after them in their honor. So there's a huge connection between Idaho and Hawaii. If you look around, there are poke bars here anyone had poke? That's a Hawaiian delicious, fresh, raw fish delicacy. 
if you look around, there's a lot of the word aloha around here, Oaihi. So there's this connection, and I was like, huh, maybe I'm meant to be here. But also, Hawaii is the furthest landmass from any other landmass in the world. As you can imagine, it becomes a little bit difficult to have things shipped there, whether it be animal, mineral, vegetable, or anything in between. And when COVID happened, it got harder. It's gotten harder to live there. It got harder for me to find a place to live, to find work. And my dream is to open a bar. And I am from Colorado originally, actually. And I miss the mountains, so I came here because this reminds me of Denver like 25 years ago. And it's amazing. And there's so much potential here. And there are some really incredible bartenders here who are creating a scene. And I think that this scene is going to be just as big as anything in like New York, San Francisco, even Hawaii, because we have all banded together and we are all coming together to create that scene here. So go visit your bars, tip your bartenders, take care of them, tell them what you like, tell them what you don't like, and we're going to create a whole new concept here in Boise, Idaho. That's it. Um, thank you so much. This has been awesome. I'm so grateful to the Lord and to all these wonderful, amazing people that we get to share the stage with. Thank you for coming out and listening to us. And now, Mai Tai and Okole Malona. Aloha! And we are back, and you just heard some great poetry and some great uh, behind-the-curtain restaurant and service industry stories that I hope you enjoyed. Let's wrap up this episode 2.5.4. Um, yeah. Why don't you uh, start thanking a bunch of people? Let's do that. I know. You know my number one, Brett Battistain and ease-drop.com um, as a network that we're on and they help put us on all the other platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, we also want to thank Annika and Jared for doing a whole lot of editing on this this episode. And Tessie Ward, amazing poet and also just generally great human. Who else do we want to thank, Mr. Rose? Well, Matt Mormon and Christy Kicks, of course. I'll tell you great ways to follow us on the social media. Yes. You can go to Facebook. There is a Story Forward group. You can go to Twitter, Story dot forward or you can go to the instagram at story dot forward and that just about covers it for us keep the story moving forward progress the narrative 